Thanks for listening to the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. I'm Justin Gary. It can be so embarrassing and dangerous, too, when you trip on something. My wife and I were rushing out of the house one early winter morning, still dark out, a bit of hustle to get to an early morning event. We were kind of dressed up as it was a bit more formal, and we had our arms full of things that we needed for the day after the event. We have a big pot out back of our house with a small evergreen tree in it. The pot and the tree come to be only about four feet high, but a bit more than a meter, and I had put it in the middle of the walkway a few days before, hoping to catch some precipitation from some showers that had passed through. Well, I had forgotten to move it back to the corner where it normally sits. And pitch black, unlit walkway, early morning, arms full of things for the day, my view was blocked and I walked straight into the thing, striking it full stride with my shin. I cracked the pot, toppled over the plant, and landed almost completely face down on the pavement. But I caught my fall just barely, even with all the junk that I was holding. Man, I did not see it coming. And did I stumble? My dress pants had dirt from the cracked pot all over them. I pulled them up and my shin was bleeding, all before heading off to this formal breakfast. No time to change, I brushed off the evidence on my pant legs, wadded some Kleenex from the car to clot the bleeding, and went to the event on time, but limping a little bit. And of course, no one to blame but myself. I had put the pot in the middle of the walkway. I had shut off the porch light since we'd be out all day. I had not been paying attention. I was the only one to blame for the stumble. Stumbling can be painful, and stumbling can be humiliating. At my work, there's a low-ply office carpet throughout much of the building, and I think it might be that no-skid type, a safety thing for students and staff to stay on their feet. But the carpet has some grip to it, I tell you, and if I'm wearing shoes with rubber soles, especially if they are newer shoes, I can be walking along the halls, just normal and all, and the front of my shoes will catch on this no-skid carpet. Stumbling and tripping over my own feet, nothing there. It's really embarrassing, especially with onlookers like students. And it's not just me. I watch coworkers do it all the time too. And while I kind of want to laugh when it happens to them, in the end, I truly understand what it is like because I do it all the time too. Stumbling is something we all do from time to time, unfortunately. And while it can wound us severely if we stumble too hard, if we can pick ourselves up and learn from it, it has the potential to be a key moment of growth in our spiritual lives. But the thought of stumbling is something that we all need to consider because no one is exempt from it. And if we think we are, we best beware. Thinking about this topic, I was remembering an old DC Talk song from 1995 from their Jesus Freak album. It was sort of a slower, haunting song in which the singer contemplated and questioned with these lyrics, what if I stumble? What if I fall? What if I lose my step and I make fools of us all? Will the love continue when my walk becomes a crawl? What if I stumble and what if I fall? So what if we stumble? What if we fall? Will God's love continue to us? How does the Lord deal with us? And how do we recover if or when we stumble? It's something we see in this portion of the Gospel of Mark, as Jesus and his disciples have commemorated the Passover and the first Lord's Supper where the bread symbolized his body and the cup his blood, and one of them departed to betray Jesus. And they sang a hymn and departed into the night, the night of Jesus' betrayal and arrest. Now, there are no potted plants in the path as they head to the Garden of Gethsemane in the dark, but there are many things to watch out for, lest they stumble and fall. We pick up in Mark chapter 14, starting off in verse 27. 
As the disciples and Jesus leave the table and head into the night, we finished up last time in verse 26 where it says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Most believe this hymn is Psalm 118, one of those that was known as the Hallel Psalms, Psalms 113 through 118. These were psalms recited at the Passover meal, and now at the end of the meal, they likely sang this psalm, Psalm 118. And it's clearly prophetic of all that Jesus is about to do. An interesting read if you've never gone through it to see how much it foreshadows Jesus' ministry and all that he came to do being fulfilled in this week of his ministry. But as the disciples sing it, I wonder if they're thinking of the lyrics and how it might apply to them. Because when they got to the garden, Jesus will talk about the stumbling that they will all do. And some lines from this psalm kind of hint at things that will take place with them. For example, Psalm 118 verses 8 and 9. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. This warning against self-sufficiency, something the disciples will deal with as they stumble, trusting in their abilities to hold on and remain faithful this night. Also, verses 19 and 20. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them, and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. Jesus was that gate of righteousness. He became the way. But as they walk out this night following him, the path is narrow, and some of them trip up a bit, not watching what is in front of them on the path, sort of like I did that morning leaving the house in a rush. There's also verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The Jewish leaders reject Jesus, the one who God sent to be the foundation stone, and some would stumble over this stone. But even as they sang this song, and even with the insight Jesus is about to share, all of them will stumble this night. We read Mark 14, verses 27 and 28. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, and he quotes from Zechariah, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Then Jesus gives some commentary, But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Man, it has been a night of some bummer news. Jesus at dinner had talked of one of them would betray him, one who dipped with Jesus in the dish, and they all wondered, is it I? Is it I? And then now they get the news that they will all stumble this very night. And then it was foretold in Old Testament prophecy centuries earlier, the shepherd would be struck and the sheep would scatter. Zechariah's prophecy is pretty pointed. Just before talking about the shepherd being struck, we read in the previous verse in verse 6 of the Old Testament prophecy, And one will say to him, What are these wounds between your arms? The word there can be translated hands, the wounds between your hands. Then he will answer, Those with which I was wounded, uh, uh, th- those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Jesus would be wounded in the house of friends by the religious leaders, just hours from this point, when the shepherd is struck and the sheep scatter. Jesus said this would happen, for it was written. God knows our nature. Nothing surprises him, and he can see in advance how we might respond. Our cats are pretty predictable, and I'm pretty predictable because you knew I'd talk about my cats again. Nothing they do surprises us too much. And something that we do notice that they do is if we bring something new into the house or if we reposition something that has already been in the house that they have previously ignored, they will gravitate to it and try to claim it. For example, we had some older antique chairs upholstered in some velvety-like fabric, and those chairs, there were two of them, sat in our living room for years. And every now and then they might sit on them. 
But last summer, when we were painting room by room, furniture kept shifting, and we moved those two chairs to another place in the house. And suddenly, these cats were all over the chairs, even fighting and jockeying for position with them between one another. We had a fake plant that they were obsessed with, and we put it in the closet for a while, hoping they'd forget about it. We put it back out, and suddenly, they were all over it, playing with it, trying to eat it. It's fake, by the way. And at first, we pulled out all of our guns to try and get them to stop, scolding them, moving them, standing over them, distracting them. But it was not working. So one morning, I decided to ignore them and see how long they kept at it with the plant. And in fact, it was only a few minutes, and then they became bored. And the plant is still in the corner, and they haven't been messing with it much, because the newness wore off. And now our plan is good to go. But me, the wiser, observant owner who knows these cats, and I can predict their behavior because I understand their nature. God saw far in advance what would take place this evening in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus and his disciples. That when he, Jesus, was struck, betrayed, arrested, even physically struck, beaten and bruised, that the sheep, those faithful and loyal disciples, well, they would scatter because he knows their nature. He could accurately foretell that after three years of following Jesus, he was their rock. He had brought them together, held them together, kept them together. And what happens this night will send them all into a tailspin. And God knows that. And God is not freaked out by that. In fact, I think Jesus tells them so that they know that God knows. And when it happens, they remember that God is in control, not them. And that they need God, that they must cling to him. Because God knows us better than we know ourselves. There's a passage in John chapter 2, early in Jesus' ministry, and it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, now this is a prior Passover, not the one that we're reading about when Jesus is crucified. During the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them, because he knew all men, and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. The Lord knows our nature. He is sober about it. He's not like some people who turn a blind eye to the shortcomings of others or make excuses or enable others. He sees it and calls it like it is. He knows the stuff that we are made of. The psalmist is in awe of how well God knows him, reflecting in Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. The psalmist realized the Lord knew him better than he knew himself. Nothing surprises the Lord about us. In fact, much of the Lord's work in our lives is working to reveal to us more of ourselves, to see more of who we are and how much we need him. We discover parts of our hearts that we had ignored or areas of our lives that need to be refined. But the Holy Spirit and the Word of God point those out to us because He sees us as we truly are. In fact, we are often surprised at what we're capable of, like in the case of if we stumble, saying, I can't believe I did that or I didn't know what I was thinking. Jesus did, and He knows us, and He still offers us His hand in spite of it all. God demonstrating his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He doesn't shy away from us with all our shortcomings and weaknesses and flaws. He offers more of himself, something that we desperately need. 
But the gracious thing about God is knowing that we are fallen and that stumbling will come. The Lord always longs for us to be restored, to come back from the stumbling. Notice right on the tale of talking about the sheep being scattered. Jesus says, but after I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus has a contingency plan for when they would fall. First, he said, after I've been raised, the resurrection, the completion of the cross, the stamp of confirmation that sin is forgiven, even their own shortcomings. The next time Jesus sees them, there will already be forgiveness for their stumbling. He would see them again after he has been raised. The price will be paid, the debt forgiven, the stain washed away. Jesus would show up with all their shortcomings being taken care of. It's it's not just the Lord who knows our shortcomings and failings. Our adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And one way that he devours is to condemn us when we fall short. He's called as well the accuser of the brethren, seeking to drive us into hiding, to flee from the Lord in shame, to have us opt back in for fig leaves to cover our nakedness. And I'm sure most of us have been there on the other side of stumbling, ashamed and condemned, but wondering if the Lord will ever take us back. When the Lord has made the provision for us to come back to him, not in a wink, wink, I'm just a nice guy who will overlook what you did, but a come look, I have made the sacrifice and provided a way back. His mercy prevailing and where sin abounding, grace abounding much more. Jesus said here in Mark that he would see them again, quote, after I have been raised. He anticipated their shortcoming and would show up again with a full payment for their transgressions when he saw them once more. Sin is indeed shameful, but the Lord has borne that shame, openly shamed on the cross, taking our shame for us. And for those who do transgress, a brokenness that draws us back, repentant, remorseful, and ready to change. Not only would Jesus show up next time after he'd been raised, but he goes on to tell them, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus has a plan, a future, and a hope after the stumbling. They would rebound from this. He would call them together again. And from there, the real work would begin. Jesus would not be done with them this night, write them off, put them out to dry. He gave them a roadmap beforehand gave them the GPS coordinates of where he wanted to see them on the other side. Failing, falling, stumbling, messing up. It can feel like the end, like the Lord is done with us, like we've made such a mess where there is no rebounding. But God did not see it that way. I love how the Bible does not hide the flaws of the so-called great ones of faith. The Abrahams who lie about their wives, the Jacobs who deceive, the Moseses who lose their temper, the Davids who cover up one sin by having a woman's husband killed in battle. God still used these men even after their stumblings. Indeed, there were repercussions, and some things were lost that they could not get back. But to all of them, the Lord said in effect, Meet me in Galilee. We'll pick up the pieces there. Maybe you've stumbled bad and compromised your name, your walk, your reputation, your relationships, your ministry, and there may be fallow seasons of brokenness, repentance, relearning, and restoration. Maybe you've stumbled just in the little things, whether it was losing your temper in traffic or saying something you probably shouldn't have, hurting something that you did not intend to. Know that the Lord has a Galilee for you if you will follow his lead. And as the God of the resurrection, He has the credentials to cash in and make dead and broken things 
come back to life. I heard a story recently of a woman who found out that she was pregnant and she decided that she did not want want this baby and opted for the abortion pill. As over 50% of abortions in the U.S. are done similarly now, a series of two pills taken a day apart at your privacy and convenience. So this woman took the pills and experienced all the bleeding and the cramping that goes along with a DIY abortion, a do-it-yourself abortion. And the woman regretted it, the loss of what she had done, realized that she had made a mistake. And the woman prayed and felt like the Lord told her that her baby was still alive. So a week and a half after having taken the pills and bled, she went in for an ultrasound and there was a strong heartbeat. Her baby had survived and is a beautiful child bringing joy in that mother's life even today. It was this woman's Galilee, God meeting her on the other side. God is a God of mercy. God is a God of forgiveness. God is a God of redemption. God is a God of resurrection. Some may need to get back up and head to Galilee. Jesus having invited you to the other side of your stumbling to meet him again and to move on from where you fell. It's something he gave the disciples on the forefront, even before they fell. Now, this is not license for free grace to say, well, I know that God will forgive me, so I'm just going to go sin and ask for forgiveness later. That's ignoring the cost for our sin and forgiveness and calling the blood of Christ a common thing. The writer of Hebrews warns, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? Paul addresses sinning under the banner of grace in Romans 6, saying twice in the chapter, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And a bit later he writes, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. We may sin. But God has set us free from sin, and grace is never an excuse to engage and indulge. So Jesus has a plan to meet them in Galilee, but Peter does not think it's going to be necessary. Mark 14, verses 29 through 31, Peter said to him, Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently, If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. Peter was confident in his own strength. He was certain of his devotion to Jesus, that he would stand by him come what may. And when Jesus says, No, Peter, actually even you, before the rooster crows twice, before the early morning hours even, in the next few hours in fact. But Peter spoke more vehemently, more demanding, No, really, Lord. Peter's strength tended to be courage and boldness. He was a disciple that often spoke up when no one else would. But our areas of strength can become our biggest weaknesses. The areas we stand strong in can also become the areas that we stumble in. Jesus is giving Peter the opportunity to consider his weaknesses. But Peter is confident, self-confident, and that is a vulnerable place to be. 
Not sure if it's still around, but when I was a teenager, there was an antiperspirant deodorant called Sure. And their whole marketing campaign had this jingle, confident, confident, dry and secure. Raise your hand, raise your hand if you're sure. And the commercials showed people in various situations in which they raised their hands up, confident, and not worried that they might have sweaty armpits, in which they might sheepishly draw back their arms, ashamed of their wet pits. And the commercials were a montage of confident, strong people raising their hands, sometimes in stressful, high-stress, high-pressure situations. The police crossing guard in the middle of the busy intersection, the cowboy at the rodeo, the student in the classroom, the opera singer center stage as they reach the final powerful note of the performance, the businessman in the boardroom. All these people raising their hands in confidence because they were sure. Peter would have been a prime candidate for those commercials had they been marketing their deodorant in the first century. He is confident, sure, sure that he will not stumble. When we put our trust in ourselves, when we think we've got this, maybe past success or our strengths and abilities or our resources, our giftings even, we face the potential to stumble and trip up because we are no longer looking to the Lord as our strength. And as Proverbs 16.8 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in chapter 10, verse 12, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Luke gives a bit more insight into the scene and conversation in his gospel. Jesus telling Peter, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Jesus warns Peter of this stumbling and even says that Satan has asked for Peter specifically. And Jesus is going to allow it. Because what the enemy means for evil, the Lord will use for good. Jesus is looking down the road, and he needs Peter purged of that self-confidence that has him trusting in himself. So Jesus is going to let Satan sift Peter as wheat to do that work of sifting. In the fields, they would separate the wheat and the chaff, sort out what was good and useful and desired, the kernels of that wheat, and sift out the rest, just those dry leaves that weren't needed anymore in order to burn off that which was just chaff and that which was useless. Peter's stumbling will be overseen by the Lord. Jesus prays that Peter's faith would fail, maybe his faith in himself, but not in Jesus. And again, Jesus points out a Galilee, that there will be another side to this, saying, And when you have returned to me, Peter, strengthen your brethren. Jesus does not want Peter to fail miserably and never recover. He wants Peter's strength and confidence to shift to Jesus completely and any self-sufficiency he currently has to be sifted out. Messing up can be a humbling thing. It exposes our weaknesses and vulnerabilities. And if we can course correct successfully, we can come back humbled, but strengthened. In fact, uh, Jesus' prayer is that Peter will indeed return to him and also have a new platform and tools to strengthen the brethren too. Jesus saw Peter's influence and leadership ability in the group, and this would be a valuable lesson that would bring him back more prepared to be used mightily by the Lord. This same Peter will in just a few weeks' time be restored and preached boldly on Pentecost, the first evangelistic outreach in which 3,000 will be saved in one day when Peter yields to the Holy Spirit rather than to his own strength, something he no doubt learned this night as he denies three times. 
It does us good sometimes to be reminded of our weaknesses and shortcomings so that we can declare like Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Things begin to unfold quite rapidly now as we pick up in Mark 14, verse 32. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came to them the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. A lot going on here, but a few things pretty clear. They soon come to the Garden of Gethsemane, just across from the temple, the olive grove where olives were harvested to make oil, likely some of it even for the oil that was used in the temple across the way. Gethsemane means olive press the place where the olives were crushed to release their oil. And we see a pressing going on here, all of them pressed under pressure, and it reveals what they're made of. Jesus's instructions, we are all going to pray. And he takes three, the three a bit further, including Peter, and asks them to watch, to cover him in prayer, as his greatest testing is about to come to. In his prayer, Jesus asks that the cup might pass if possible, the cup of judgment and God's wrath. If there is any other way to bring salvation to mankind, Jesus asks the Father for that, for a way out. Any plan B, any other way rather than this one of going to the cross? He asks this three times, but there is no other way, is there? Jesus suffering and dying in our place, it's the only way for us to be saved. And Jesus, knowing that his greatest hour of testing is coming, He is on his face praying to the Father, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. First, Jesus knows that he is not alone in this, that he has a Father, an Abba, one who is over him that he can go to for provision, for protection, for guidance, for wisdom, for comfort, all the things that a Father brings. Jesus is not alone in this. And Jesus, anticipating the challenges to come, draws near to the Father in advance so that he will not draw back nor stumble in the hour of testing. Jesus is doing the prep work first. In contrast, Jesus has told his disciples their testing is coming too, and he asks them to pray as well, to watch and pray, but he finds them sleeping three times. When given the opportunity to get ready, they drift off. Part of it could be because they're escaping it. Their eyes are heavy, but maybe their hearts too. And we see that when things are really emotional, sometimes we just sleep and want to sleep. Sort of an escapism. But Jesus has given them the opportunity to prepare in advance for the temptation that they're about to face. But they're not taking that opportunity. 
and we are wise to fight temptation in advance, before we face it, not in the moment. If we wait until the moment of temptation, it is often too late. We've already made provision for the flesh, and we give in to weakness. We often know before we will be in a trying situation, the calm before the storm of a stressful week, the meeting or confrontation that we know will be a difficult one, being around certain people that really can try us, heading into situations where we might be vulnerable to ungodly decisions, being in places or circumstances that we might be easily able to sin in. We know ourselves pretty well. And if we truly want to come through the testing and temptations well, the time to fight the battles is often beforehand. Seeking the Lord in prayer for strength, wisdom, discernment, even a plan of action up front that will keep us from derailing, or maybe even seeking accountability beforehand so we know we're not in that battle alone. Three times Jesus tried to get these guys to get up and pray. This was their opportunity to fortify before the battle. Instead, they slept and they were not ready when the temptation came. And now, time's up, Jesus says. It's showtime. Verses 43 through 50. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. And then they all forsook him and fled. Judas shows up. He is in the middle of his stumbling, but Judas is, is a calculated stumble. It's a planned one. There are stumblings that take place in a moment of weakness. We don't think through. We react in the flesh. And it's like one moment we're doing well, and then boom, we trip up. But there are others that are planned, that are calculated. And Judas is on that path. He took steps to get there. He planned to do this. He even came up with and communicated a sign that they could look for. I wonder how many times along the way that Judas thought, I shouldn't be doing this. How many roadblocks he had to pass through to fully enact this plan. Oh, how wonderful God is to us that we have the Holy Spirit as believers. We get a check in our spirit that tells us we need to stop, like the warning light on a dashboard, something warning us to take a look. How wise we are to heed these warnings. Judas did not. He kept going, justifying to himself what he was doing. And now his plan is in total play, planned, perfected, and now enacted. What a blessing that we have in the Holy Spirit. He is a Holy Spirit, and he will cry out to us when we begin to tread in unholy territory or go in a path that leads us off from where God would have us to be. Do not quench the Spirit. He is a spiritual warning system that we'd be wise to heed. And how many of our stumblings could have been avoided if we had truly listened? When the mob seizes Jesus, we read in verse 47, And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. We know from other Gospels that this one with the sword, it was Peter, the ever-so-confident one that is ready to go to jail with Jesus and will not deny him, taking matters into his own hands to save the day. 
There's a difference between walking in the flesh versus walking in the spirit. And Jesus had said that earlier when they're falling, a spirit, uh, falling asleep, that the spirit was willing, but the, the flesh was weak. And when we respond in the flesh, it can bring pain and destruction. This was not the right thing to do in the situation. Though in the moment, it probably seems so right to Peter, but already he's seeing the repercussions of not having prepared in prayer in the garden. The temperature is rising and Peter is already cracking. We read elsewhere that Jesus healed the ear. What a gracious thing that he does. If Jesus had not, Peter may also have been arrested this night, and there could have been four crosses on Calvary the next day, Peter hanging on the fourth one. But God was not yet done with Peter, and in his mercy, God fixes the situation, overcoming Peter's folly for the continued work of God. The truth is, we will stumble but we have a merciful and gracious God. And it is amazing what God can do through our stumbles in spite of them. God was not yet done with Peter. In fact, his greatest and most useful years were still to come. We have made a, made a mess of things, perhaps, pulled out our swords and hacked off some ears here and there, but Jesus is bigger than those things and can bring healing and restoration to places where we may have brought pain. Mark finishes this portion with some interesting insights in verses 51 and 52. It says, Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. This certain young man, he fled. When it comes to stumbling, some fleeing is actually good. I think of Joseph, who when tempted by Potiphar's wife, fled rather than sin. But other fleeing is not the best like fleeing our responsibility or our integrity or accountability or off-ramps that the Lord might present to us to avoid a temptation or snare to sin. Who is this young man who fled naked? It's likely Mark himself. This humble insertion of his own shortcomings this night in the gospel that he's writing. This kid is barely clothed. So what's he doing in the garden with this whole mob scene? Well, John Mark, as he's known, was young at this time. And a lot of people speculate that the home where Jesus and the disciples had just had the Passover meal was the upper room at John Mark's parents' house. We see in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, that the early church used to meet at the home of John Mark's mother. So some speculate that Judas went and got the crowd who would be arresting Jesus and took them first to the upper room where the Passover had been observed by Jesus and the Twelve since Judas had been with them there and maybe thought that they were still there. And when Judas shows up with his mob and torches and the whole bit, Mark, still young at the time, might have thrown on a linen cloth and ran to the garden to try and warn Jesus and the twelve, trying to get there ahead of the crowd. But when everything goes down, he gets scared and runs off. He too betraying Jesus in this moment. And thus what Jesus saw beforehand comes to pass. They all forsook him and fled, even Mark. Mark inserts himself anonymously here, the young man who fled as well. Mark is the one writing this, so in humility he can't point fingers at Peter or any of the others because he was just as capable of stumbling too, and he did. But as Mark testifies here, even of himself, we are all capable of stumbling. As I was preparing this podcast, I was digging through this concept of stumbling and how we are all capable of it and the Lord knows and how he calls us onward to Galilee and has made provision for us when we, when we do trip up. And you think as I was studying this that I would have my guard up. Fat chance. I actually took a break from studying partway through to work on a few things around the house. 
both minor plumbing issues that I was troubling that I was troubleshooting. Nothing major, at least for most people. There was a leaky faucet, and there was the cleaning out of the sediment from one of our two water heaters. I replaced the elements in the water heater, and then I discovered that the pressure relief valve was leaking, so that needed replacing too. Anyway, I took a break from preparing the podcast to get to those chores, and things were not going well. Well, what would probably be easy for some people was becoming an ordeal for me. The part that I needed for the faucet is not an easy find, and the pressure relief valve was not coming loose as easily as the DIY video on YouTube showed that it would. And I was being pretty vulnerable, been going through a season in my life in general of what I would call breaking. And on top of that, found out the night before that my grandmother had passed away and I was trying to process that loss. So for me, it was all the perfect storm. But as the repair regiment turned into minutes, then hours, and my patience grew thin, even had my dad on the phone from halfway around the world walking me through one of the repairs on FaceTime, but it was not working out for me. I kind of lost it. No, I'll be honest, I pretty much lost it. No, I, I did lose it. I let go, and I should not have. My wife, who was sitting outside enjoying the spring sun with a book, got the brunt of it as I passed by her from the water heater. And I may even have said a few words that are normally not a part of my vocabulary, nor should they be. I didn't say them to her, but they did not stay in my head as maybe I thought that they would. And I stormed in the house. She held me to account, even texted and told me I needed to come back and apologize, which I eventually did. But I was ripe for tripping up. And even preparing a podcast on it did not keep me from going over the edge. So sure, my stumbling this week did not involve some deep-rooted scandal. But nevertheless, it was not a glorious moment. I repented to God. I apologized to my wife. I took a break and went for a run, and it cleared my head, gave me some time to think and focus. When I came back, I approached the water heater problem differently an hour or so later by asking my neighbor for a different tool that I did not have myself, and guess what? It worked. Almost like the Lord was holding out to help, help me until I was done doing it by myself, humbled in the process and ready to proceed. It was a Galilee moment for sure when the Lord met me and the pressure valve came out, almost as easily as they showed in the DIY YouTube video but not a shining moment for me and pretty hard to finish preparing this podcast with my tail between my legs as it should be after all. Sometimes the small stumbles are a blessing, breaking us just enough to hopefully bring us back from the edge where we might stumble in bigger ways. It's like stopping long enough to tie our shoelaces, just a brief stop to retie so that we can keep walking and not trip up in a bigger way down the path. And it is tripping up like that big or small, that the Lord has made provision for. A reminder once again that the safest place for us to be is always at the foot of the cross. Close enough to stand in its shadow to remind us of what Jesus has done to keep us from going too far, and close enough to reach out and touch base once again when we have done what the Lord may have even known what was coming. So as the lyrics go, what if I stumble? What if I fall? Peter did. John Mark did. All the disciples did you and I will. But Jesus did not. He does not. He will not. He is our rock, and we are wise to stay near. So Lord, we ask that you would keep us near. For all we like sheep have gone astray, but we have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. Lord, to whom else shall we go? Only you have the words of eternal life, and it is that life that we know which comes by the life that you have so freely given. Thank you for the Garden of Gethsemane, for accepting the cup that was necessary to take up, that you may take our judgment. 
We need your grace, Lord. We need your mercy. We need your guidance, your wisdom, your protection. May we grow ever dependent on you. And Lord, keep us from stumbling where at all possible. We claim the blessing that we find in the final verse of the New Testament book of Jude, where it is written, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory and with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.